it's the marketer's job to educate people who actually want to improve their site and things like that, to give them the information and the tools and the skills to, to do so. Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Everyonehatesmarketer.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll, be, we'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also, quite simply, to have great one-to-one -one conversation if you need any help. In episode seven of uh, everyonehatesmarketers.com, I'm talking to Dave Schneider, and uh, he's the CEO of Ninja Outreach. And Ninja Outreach is a tool to help you to get in touch with bloggers or, or people you want to get in touch in your industry who have more followers than you or a bigger network, I would say. And I've actually used their, their tool quite a lot in the past, and it's a very powerful one, so you should check it out. But Dave is a very transparent guy. During this episode, he's, he's actually sharing a lot of his uh, life story, how he left uh, his job and his, actually his girlfriend did the same to travel to Japan, to Southeast Asia, to Europe, and now how he manages a team of 20 people. They're all working remotely. So he actually ran a blog, a travel blog, and earned money this way in the last few years. And then during this episode, we're going to talk about, you know, network marketing and pyramid schemes in digital marketing and, and then why you should avoid them. He's also talking about transparency in business, externally to an audience and also internally in the company. And he's also talking about the importance of good, good copywriting in authentic marketing and how to become a great copywriter, which is a really interesting part of the episode. And finally, as usual, Dave is going to share his top recommended marketing and copywriting blogs and tools you should use. So have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Dave. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Louis? Pretty good. Uh, thanks for, for coming to the show, coming to this podcast. The first question I wanted to ask you is, um, what's the most exciting thing? Uh, is it to study applied mathematics in Harvard or is it to build a business from zero to 500 customers? I was definitely not studying applied math at Harvard because... Let's face it, applied math isn't that fun or interesting. Uh, really? Maybe being maybe being at Harvard is kind of interesting, I suppose. But after a few years, you know, it seems like just to everywhere else that you could have gone to college. Building a business from scratch is definitely pretty interesting. But the other thing is, you know, it takes several years to really get to a point where actually one might say it is interesting, especially if you're bootstrapping, because in the beginning it's just you, maybe your partner, you're just getting it off the ground. So in a lot of those days are just a great the most interesting thing I've done is definitely the traveling. I've traveled to over 50 countries in the last few years. So that, that is, beats both of them. And uh, just going back to Harvard, because uh, I'm curious about this, how did you get into Harvard? What was the process? Well, technically, the process is just like anywhere else. If you were going to apply to a college in the United States, you have to fill out a general application. You have to write essays. You have to go and do an interview with an alumni. And if you and do all those things and essentially 
20,000 people apply and they accept, I think, uh, 2,000 or so. I mean, roughly about 10%. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what what you had to do before all of that is about doing things like, you know, getting good grades in school, having a lot of leadership activities. You know, I was class president, I was captain of the baseball team, had good scores. So just a lot of things have to kind of add up. Okay. That's quite interesting. So 10%, 10% of people who apply to Harvard get through. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's applied mathematics anyway to like stupid people like me? Uh, applied mathematics is, well, what it technically is, is about taking something like math and then finding ways to apply it in the real world uh, so you can actually use it. But in the way it actually manifests itself in a college major is you take a mix of a lot of different things like physics and statistics and economics, math, all of those trying to be kind of practical in nature. Uh, so you kind of get to try a lot of different little things as opposed to really dedicating yourself to being a pure math major or a pure you know, physics major or something like that. All right. And you touched about this just briefly, and I'm curious to hear the answer. So basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but in 2012, you left your job at a bank as, a, mm -hmm. as an analyst, right? And mm -hmm. then there's a gap between uh, this period and then June of 2014, where you launched uh, Ninja Outreach, right? So That's right. what happened in those two years? Mm -hmm. So in those two years or so, September 2012, we quit our jobs and we left. Uh, my, I'm t when I say we, I'm talking about my girlfriend and I. And we left to go travel uh, backpacking around the world. Uh, we, we got a one-way ticket to Japan and we had plans to go through Korea, China, Asia, Europe, uh, a bunch of different places uh, over the course of two years. Um, and that was and that that was really and that was what we did for two years. We, we traveled. We, we visited a bunch of countries. We did a lot of interesting things. Things. But it was also where we started working online, where we started uh, writing a blog, where we started earning some money. The first time, you know, people paid us money through the internet, developed some of the skill sets that are required to maybe start and grow a business online, like content marketing, SEO, you know, design, learning what it was to hire an offshore, you know, remote worker, you know, a virtual assistant. That was a concept I didn't even know really existed until we were out traveling and we were reading things like Tim Ferriss's, you know, uh, the, uh, the four hour work week and things like that. So a lot of stuff happened in those two years to kind of set the foundation of what I'm doing now. There isn't necessarily anything particularly notable in terms of achievements, aside from that we, we did run a travel blog and we made some good money on that. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay. So that was, I think I, I like to dig deeper into that. I think people listening will also be interested in, in those two years because from reading your story and who you are, my guess is that those two years are really almost the most important of your life so far because they really change from where you were before to where you are today, right? Exactly. Yeah, it, it really set the course of, of action. So where did you go first? In terms of geographic location, we went to Japan. The idea was to basically go probably as far away as we could and then make our way back home. We're was, from Boston. Was Boston that bad? Well, you know, we, we had been living in D.C. We're originally from Boston, went to school in the area. We had been living in Washington, D.C. We moved up to Boston briefly just basically to kind of drop some stuff off at parents' house. And then we left uh, really quickly. So I think it was it was more just made sense, I guess, to go far and then make our way back as opposed to go close and then have to take a long flight back. Okay. So how long did you stay in Japan? In Japan, we were only there for probably like 10, 10 or so days. It was really quick, two weeks maybe. 
And after that? After that, we went to Korea, where we were there for 10 days. And then after that, we went to China, and we were there for almost six weeks. Okay. So you stayed in Asia for two months, two months and a half? Well, then we went down to Southeast Asia, and we did Vietnam and Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Burma. So we, we were in Asia, actually, for something more like nine months. And then at this point, it started to get, you know, you're talking about April or so, it started to get really, really hot. So we went to Europe, and we went to France, and then we were, we, we were in Europe for another, I don't know, six or so months, and then we went back and forth. <laughs> and, and obviously, France was the best country you ever visited, wasn't it? <laughs> France was pretty awesome. Yeah. It really is one of our favorites. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I haven't paid you to say that, just to make sure listeners are, <laughs> yeah. are sure of that. Uh, where did you go in France? Well, we landed in Paris, but we took a, a road trip. Uh, we went down south uh, to, we went to Marseille, we went to Nice, uh, we went to, I think, Toulouse, Lyon, we went to like Rochelle, or, or there's a lot of places that I can't even remember exactly what the name was. I'm sure you would know. And we also went up north um, to <laughs> well, the, the, uh, the, the places that are up north. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the famous places up north. <laughs> We went to Normandy, uh, you know, I just, I can't remember all the places, you know. Yeah, I don't blame you. Okay, right. So you, you like, you did this amazing trip uh, that I think a lot of people would like to do uh, in their lifetime. A lot of people would talk about this without ever doing it. So I think it's interesting to hear somebody who's actually, uh, who actually did it. So now let's talk about the business side of, of this trip, because you mentioned it in the past, in just in, in the last few minutes, that it actually was the foundation of where you are today and the foundation of your business, Ninja Outreach. What was the first business or the first business activity that you, that you did uh, when you were traveling? Yep. The first business was definitely the travel blog. Uh, we started a travel blog um, uh, as a way to... Uh, stay active, stay busy while we were traveling, maybe get some free trips and activities that we could, you know, we could work with uh, some, some companies. Um, and also just, you know, keep friends and family informed. But we were definitely hoping that maybe we could make a little bit of money on it because actually the amount of savings that we had relative to the trip that we wanted to do wasn't enough. We felt like we were maybe short five grand or something to, to kind of complete the, the two year trip. So, we started the travel blog thinking that that wouldn't be able to make the difference because we saw other people travel blogging and yeah, they, they had some nice blogs, but it didn't seem like they were doing anything that was that incredibly uh, necessarily interesting or unique, but it, it also seemed like they were making some money. So I started, we started the blog, you know, six or so months before we actually left to go travel. And that was when I was doing the whole nights and weekends thing, designing it, you know, learning about SEO. It was, it was a time when you just did everything yourself. You didn't think about hiring a developer to, to do something for you or to have a, an assistant. You know, it was, it was actually, you know, when I was doing a lot of the grunt work. Um, but that was where I learned everything. Uh, so we did that for about six months to kind of get it started. And then we started making money in our first month little by little and eventually it started paying for the entire trip wow okay um to come back to what you just said so you actually prepared this you planned that before traveling you knew that a travel blog was something that you would do uh, that you would be interested in and therefore you planned it and you learned digital marketing this way exactly yep i mean exactly Okay. Um, so you learn it this way, you learn about SEO, like how to be found on Google and all this kind of stuff. Did you start writing on the blog before you left or did you start writing after you left? 
Yeah, we started writing as, as soon as we were, you know, as we got started uh, not before the trip is what I mean. Uh, and we were doing writing on the blog. We were writing about D.C., you know, where we were. So we, uh, we were writing about trips that we took uh, in the past. Uh, we started doing some guest posting. So we wrote on other people's uh, blogs, trying to make connections with other travel bloggers. And, you know, there's a there, there was a bit of a. There's an attraction to uh, people that are writing about a travel that's about to happen, you know, because people sort of get attached to the story and they go, oh, these these guys are going to leave on this big trip in six months. So and it's common like that, that that is something that kind of happens. So people write, they write about all the preparation they're doing, the shots, the visas, all those types of things. And they build the following of people that are kind of like expecting their launch date, you know, and that was how we got our first audience. Yeah, very interesting. And I think you're touching on a lot of important uh, aspects of marketing that we we'll discuss in the second part. But so let me back up a little bit. You started this blog six months before, then you left, uh, you travel and you already had a sort of an audience, correct? At this stage when you left. Mm -hmm. Um, and how did you make your first dollars or euros or whatever currency you were on at this stage? Yeah, we were on dollars. So, um, the first Basically, one one day, um, an advertiser reached out to us and they said, hey, uh, you've got this post and I've got this client and I think that, that this client would be great if you would put them in your post. Um, all you need to do is link to them and there's a couple keywords that we'd like you to link to. So um, what do you say? I'll give you 50 bucks. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, 50 bucks. And it only took me like two minutes, you know, it's just a little, uh, you had a link, right? I had some keywords, maybe edit the text. I wasn't really, you know, the client seemed like the client, client seemed fine. You know, nothing like nothing that I would feel uncomfortable quote unquote representing, you know? Um, so I said, okay, yeah, sure. I got 50 bucks. And then that was it. And that was the first money that we sort of made. Uh, and, and that, and then, you know, and that was kind of it, right? That was the whole money we made for that month. And we used to do income reports where we talked about every month what money we made. And that, that month's income report was like, you know, 50 bucks. That was what we made. Uh, then the next month, uh, we got another request um, from another advertiser. And they had two clients. And they wanted us to add links to both of them in two other posts that, that we had already written. Uh, and they were going to pay us $150 each, so a total of $300. And I, I was, oh, I, I, how could I pass up $300? You know, uh, we're basically sleeping on some stranger's couch right now. <laughs> you know, it's $300 goes a long way. So we said, okay, yeah, sure. And I put in the links. And then it took, a, it took me five minutes. And then they paid me right away. I, I had $300. And I said, wow, I mean, this is, this is a lot lot of money because we were planning to try to make $5,000 from the whole blog in two years. And here we had made $300 in just a couple minutes. And, you know, at that point, uh, the question was about, well, how do we find more people like this? Because if somebody is, we've established that there's some sort of demand here for what we're offering. We don't really know. We didn't really know what was going on. Like we didn't really understand like why they wanted these links and why they were willing to pay so much. And nobody else had kind of talked to us about this, uh, but we knew like something was kind of going on. So we started asking the other travel bloggers that we knew, because like I said, we had been kind of yeah, building some relationships prior to this. They're like, hey, this just happened. Does this happen to you? And from there, it kind of snowballed. Okay. So that's, that's an interesting story because what I like about it is that you didn't try to chase the money or customers. They basically came to you first and then you realized that there was a fit. Um, 
Yeah, that's an easy way of saying that we didn't know what we were doing and we got lucky, which is pretty much what happened. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. Not a lot of people <laughs> would be that honest, but it's true. Not a lot of people would be that honest. And I think, you know, I've talked to a few entrepreneurs uh, recently, um, especially bootstrapped entrepreneurs. And one key thing that I really like about about those people, you know, is that they're being 100% honest when you ask them about the beginnings, you know, they're not trying to sugarcoat things and making them prettier than they actually are. They tell you the truth. They didn't know what they were doing. Most of the time they still don't know entirely what they're doing. And that's how it goes, you know? So it's okay to feel like you don't know what you're doing. You're making mistakes along the way and then you're learning from them. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, right. So I'm interested about something in particular, um, your decision to travel and your decision to build this business. Um, what made you who you are today? Why are you doing this? Well, the decision to travel was a combination of a, of a couple different factors, but, but what it mainly came down to was we didn't really enjoy our jobs. We didn't kind of envy what we, the kind of what we said that saw as the path that we were on, which was that, uh, yes, we had good jobs and we were making some decent money. I mean, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a terrible place to be, frankly, but still, you know, I looked at people that were five, 10 years older than me and I just didn't feel like they maybe had kind of gone out and had some experiences that we wanted to have, you know, in our lives. They had, they had worked, they had gotten promoted, they were making good money and they had families and kids and houses and car and stuff like that. Um, and it wasn't that we said that there was anything wrong with that. It was more just that we said, we have time for that later. Uh, so why don't we do something interesting now? Um, so the idea was to basically go and travel. We both are avid travelers. We studied abroad in university. You know, we, we like traveling. Um, and, and that this would be a time to obviously see the world. And we were hoping that maybe we would start a business together or come up with some ideas that, you know, would free us from the shackles of, of office work. But as a fallback plan, we were both planning on maybe going to business school and that we then that we would have a transition plan. You know, we had a plan B if we, you know, to reenter the workforce. All right. So it travels and it's because like, am I right to say that it's because of books like uh, the four hour work week and that kind of, of, of resources that it inspire you to go? Not exactly, no. because we didn't actually read those books until we were already traveling. You know, I didn't read the four hour work week until I was already traveling for a few months. It was more, it was part, I guess part of it was, I don't even know exactly. I, I honestly think we kind of came up with the idea ourselves. Um, but then as we started to dive deeper into kind of pursuing this idea, like what, what would this mean? Well, how could we do it? We started reading travel blogs online and we saw that there were people out there doing what we wanted to do and that these guys like Nomadic Matt and they had been to all these countries and they were writing about all the places and it was just like, you know, this is what we wanted to do. And there were people that were doing it, so it seemed pretty possible. So we hadn't necessarily had, you know, the, to come across the formal reading that I came upon later to really understand that this was part of a larger movement that was happening to people, but more so just kind of like uh, little by little, we saw some proof of its existence. Mm, gotcha. Um, you mentioned people that were older than you that had, you know, kids, a family, a house, a car, uh, that had a boring job who, who were like, who were those people? Uh, those people were like my managers, 
You know, they, they were the people that occupied the positions that I would get promoted into. So they were pretty much people that started where I was and, but they were, they had more years of experience. So it was, it was, it was very much like I felt like I was, that was the path that I was on. Um, these people were a couple of years ahead of me. So you look ahead and, and you should always look ahead and look at, you know, people that are in the position maybe that you are now who are in that position uh, years earlier and think, you know, is this where I want to be in five years? And if the answer is no, you might want to reevaluate your current path and trajectory and that was kind of what we did and was it a aha moment or did it take time for you to to think about this i don't know if it was an aha move uh, moment I, i think it was you know uh it was really just a series of, of of days and weeks and months and 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 little maybe very little aha moments that kind of uh came into being like i said the discovery of a travel blog that really inspired us you know that's kind of like an aha day but it isn't necessarily like we saw that website and we just dropped everything and i gave my notice and and that was it it was it was definitely very much step by step and even the the travel itself which ended up being 21 months, you know, close to two years, was originally just a one-year plan. So even there was these kind of incremental extensions and adjustments that got made later on. Um, I did not ask you this question before, but how much, uh, how much did you have in the bank to travel? You mentioned that you were short of 5,000. What was the original budget? I think the original budget was that we would need something like 25 grand per person per uh for two years. Okay. Uh, so it would be about, so you're looking at like a grand a month per person, like on average. Um, so that would be 50 grand in total for two years for two people. And we had like 45. All right. Okay. Right. So I, I mentioned in the intro that, you know, you're the founder of uh, the co-founder of uh, Ninja Outreach. Um, before we dig there, we dig into the outreach and marketing in general. I'd love to ask you a question about uh, something particular. I'd love to know something about this business that you've never told anyone? Boy, something about this business that we've never told anybody. It's, it's, it's difficult only because I've, I've done a fair bit of, of interviews and podcasts and I have sort of said quite a lot about that. But um, I guess, I guess one of the i guess one thing maybe that i i may we may have sort of never told anybody was that originally i was looking we were looking to build something else uh we were looking to build a content promotion software and and ninja which is in some ways is kind of a content promotion software but there was a different vision there there was a vision where you would put in a post and it would maybe promote it to forums and it, it would do different things on social media and that you would start like from a post and that it would kind of you, you'd have an easier way to kind of promote it in all these different ways um, but what happened was that as we talked to more bloggers and people in the target market they didn't say that that was what they wanted what they said what they wanted was a blogger outreach crm and that was so that was what we did we ended up kind of basically revamping the original tech technology that we had to fit what they were saying. So if I haven't, if I've told anybody that it's not that many people. <laughs> yeah, that's good enough for us. That's good enough yeah. for us. Um, so as you know, this podcast is really for digital marketers who are sick and tired of the marketing BS out there, right? Uh, sure. There's a lot of lingo. There's a lot of BS in, in internet marketing in particular. And those people want to be better at their job, right? So they want to be better at their job. They want to be better marketers. They want to help 
their company to grow, but they want to do that without interrupting or lying or manipulating customers. They just want to do that ethically, right? So I like to start this conversation about marketing and digital marketing in more in particular. And what I like to do is really to try to give actionable insights, actionable, you know, things that the listeners can take away and actually do tomorrow or even today in their business or in somebody else's business. Um, so I'd like to start with one question. What, when you browse website online, when you go on internet online, I mean, you know, we are pretty much, I think, both using the internet every day, all day for our daily jobs. Um, what online stuff that you see boils your, boils your blood the most? What annoys you the most? The stuff that I really don't care for is... And I don't want to make a blanket statement, you know, as if anything under this is, is just, you know, awful or whatever. But it's generally sort of the network marketing type of stuff, the sort of I'm going to sell you something and the way for you to make money is then to sell more of it. Um, those types of kind of like pyramid scheme scenarios. Uh, there's a lot of those things out there. I think that in general, they're traps. And, you know, people putting together these case studies about kind of all the money they made and stuff like that. And it's not they're not actually necessarily lying. Actually, they probably are making that money. But the question is kind of like, how are they making that money and how the people that that are paying them, how they are doing, right? So are they actually adding value to other people's lives or is it really what's going on? Is it just a distribution of wealth in a net zero game? And I've just see, I've seen, you know, a fair bit of those things. And I think they, they really kind of prey on, on newbie kind of marketers, you know, people that don't necessarily know any better, but are attracted by the shiny object and in the, you know, the quick cash and stuff like that. And I've signed up for stuff like that as well. When I was just starting, you know, uh, that was supposed to be kind of like get rich quick type of stuff or whatever. Cause who is, who hasn't tried to get rich quick, you know, scheme on the internet. So, um, but anyways, yeah, those are the things I, I really don't care for. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good answer. Just as a personal, uh, anecdote, I nearly got trapped in a scheme, in a scam, uh, you know, from, a email that you would receive from like this, uh, Nigerian drug lord <laughs> uh, that will give you 1 million euro just because your last name is the same than their whatever. I nearly sure. actually fell into that when I was 18 or 19. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, <laughs> anyway, I was, I was young. Uh, but I think, I think you touched on something very important here. And I think that's one of the basis of the marketing BS out there is that people like, especially marketers starting out, think that they could achieve their goal quickly without going through the journey. You know, they would try to get shortcuts and try to to just focus on making money on the shiny object, as you said, instead of providing value. So what you said is actually very interesting. So now that we talked about like one of the things that you, that you dislike the most about, about this, about marketing and on internet in general, how do you think marketers in particular could make the internet a better place? I think it's it's really about quality control uh, is the biggest thing out there. You know, unfortunately, any I don't want to say unfortunately, but you know, anybody can put whatever they want on the internet. You know, and that's that's part of the beauty of the internet is because it, it kind of levels the playing field to give everybody a voice. You know, no matter what country or what income you have, anybody can kind of put something up on the web. Unfortunately, you know, if you're actually trying to use the internet, there's so much junk out there that you kind of have to sort through. You know, websites that are 
poorly designed, poorly optimized, poor content. You're trying to buy some product or whatever, and there's you know 10 marketers who have built niche sites to try to kind of basically sell you on it so that they can be the one to make the commission off of you. You know, it, the internet is just so polluted, which is just kind of uh, a shame. So back to how this, you know, what I, I think it's the marketer's job to educate people who actually want to improve their site and things like that, to give them the information and the tools and the skills to, to do so. Okay. And I think it's linked, but how do you think we should, as marketers in general, how do we think we could be trusted by people again? Because just as an insight, I think it's a HubSpot research that they made recently, only 3% of people would trust marketers. Mm. Yeah, it, it's definitely difficult um, because, you know, markers are always trying to kind of sell, you know, things. And, and of course, people are generally distrustful of, of, of sales and, and funnels like that. But I think that I think in but at the same time you have to kind of you know you have to sell something uh, otherwise you're you know you have to you know, how you're going to make your money and stuff like that and there's there's plenty of sales stuff that is very you know admirable and everything so again uh, I think it comes back to having a high moral compass you know making sure that anything you kind of put your name to or that you represent you know as best as you know that that you support you know whether you're an affiliate for something is you're an affiliate because you actually think it's going to provide value to, to people or if it's your own product you make sure that it's good and you know, try to tone down the hype a little bit. You know, I really, uh, with those network marketing things, for example, I just, whenever I see a, a, a page that's kind of like all in red and, and caps and it's, you know, the, the call to actions here and there and, uh, and, and just pictures of this person on the beach, you know, with some hot chicks or whatever it is, you know, it's, that's, that's the sort of stuff that I just think really needs to go, you know, because it just, it just, I think, gives a bad name out to all the marketers out there. It is, it is. Like you're one of the the very rare companies that that actually share a lot of things online that are being very transparent online, which I think is is very good. And I believe, and we believe in 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 slices that this is one of the answer to to marketing BS out there is that if companies are being more transparent, therefore there will be less pollution because people will just see things as they are instead of trying to fake things or make them bigger or better than they actually are. And so why did you decide to be that transparent? Why are you sharing that many things? Yeah, we, we do try to be transparent in terms of what we, you know, what we put out there. For example, if you want to see how much, you know, money the company is making, that's the one that people always want to know, right? You just go to our blog and it's basically right there. We used to do monthly income reports. We stopped them, not because we, we didn't want to be in the transparency movement, but just because I uh, kind of got tired of writing them every month. <laughs> I, got, I got really busy. Uh, but, you know, it's something that potentially we would do. And I've done, you know, in December last year, we did like a yearly update where I discussed kind of a lot of things that were going on. So anyway, uh, thanks for mentioning us as the transparency people. Um, it comes it comes from looking at um, other companies that are much more mature than us and basically admiring them. Uh, companies like Groove and Buffer, who are frankly have a lot more reason than us to not be transparent. Uh, because you do... You do have to be careful and, uh, you know, I've always supported the transparency movement, but I did, uh, I was listening to, I don't know, a podcast with, you know, Rob Walling starts for the rest of us and he was making a few points 
about why the why sometimes you can't be transparent um, because frankly there are a lot of people out there who are going to try to take advantage of that and maybe try to copy you and I even got an email from someone the other day um, who used to be on Barometrics's open dashboard they have a dashboard where they where they write all the companies that are putting out their revenue and I said hey you guys used to be on the Barometrics open dashboard how come you're not there anymore and they said well because people saw what kind of money we were making and a bunch of you know satellite bit copy businesses started to pop up because it was a services business and they're not that hard to replicate. Anyway, not to get off on a tangent or whatever, in general, I, I, I like the transparency. It comes from looking at companies like Groover and Buffer and saying those are the types of companies that we want to be. And as, as much as we can be, we're going to try to be transparent you know, sort of in the future. And it's also the last thing I want to say about it too. It's not just an external thing for us. It's also an internal thing for us. And I think that a lot of the companies like Groover and Buffer treat it very much the same, where it's not just about, hey, posting how much money, you know, that that, that they're making. But, you know, we ha- we do a lot of things internally in the company to make things transparent. We do, you know, company, company-wide uh, meetings to give people an idea of what's going on in the company. So we try to make, uh, we try to foster transparency internally as well as externally. That's a, that's a really interesting discussion, and I don't think we need to cut it off or, or try to shorten it. Uh, like, you, you, there's something that you mentioned that I'm interested in. I agree with you, like, transparency, just for the sake of transparency, doesn't work. It has to be with a proper, like, purpose, and it has to be thoughtful as well. So, obviously, let's say you are a, a company with a, you know, who just invented a, a software that is, you know, unique, there's something new. Obviously, you're not going to share the patents online to everybody on the web, right? So there is there are things that you shouldn't share, like company secrets or trademarks or whatever. And I think another thing as well that is very important, and perhaps that's what uh, the podcast has, has mentioned, is that when you're transparent, you need to share the good and the bad, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we've write, written several times about the types of failures that that we've had, and, and sort of in getting started. And on podcasts, you know, frequently talk about you know the poor decisions that we've made at the company and the regrets that we have. So I think that's an important point as well. What benefits do you bring you uh, to be transparent? Well, the the benefits of the transparency, I think, uh, aside from maybe building trust with with uh, you know listeners, visitors, things like that, it's potentially opportunities that that come from supplying information. As an example, you know, people might come in under a blog and see the revenue, and somebody who is involved in investment or venture capital um, will take a look at that and go, "Oh, this is a company. They're at the uh, they're yeah, I, you know, they they would may have looked at Ninja Outreach and been." Like well, I, yeah, this is just some nothing startup or something, right? And then they say, oh, actually, okay, they're making a little bit of money. This is interesting. Maybe I want to reach out to them. We've had, we've definitely had kind of people reach out to us, and I suspect that that they are kind of in the loop about uh, maybe where the company's at in terms of maybe the number of employees and the revenue based on our sort of transparency. However. It's important to kind of understand, though, that 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 may close as many doors as it opens, potentially, because maybe people see a number that and they go, well, if that's what it is, I'm not that interested. Or, you know, there are other reasons for uh, that investors don't want those types of numbers to be out there, because if they, for example, going to invest or acquire a business, they want some level of secrecy or whatever. So um, I, I have seen examples of people pull back their transparency for those types of things. So I think that it has definitely provided some opportunities in terms of people see information that they wouldn't have seen otherwise, and then they reach out to you. But it's hard to, to quantify the number of missed opportunities as well, because you just never hear about them. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess 
in business, you can't please everybody. Uh, and what we, you know, and what we found in our side of things is that it's actually a very good way to select customers and, and followers in a sense and, and, and people just who like us and people who, who hate us. It's a good way to, yeah, to have people who said, you know what, I completely stand behind what they, the fact that they share everything and other people would be very uncomfortable with this idea. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So internally, just about this transparency again, I guess you have, how many co-founders do you have? Are you three? Uh, we have, uh, there's three of us. Yeah. Okay. And so you have a team of uh, 12 at the minute. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. When you are transparent to your team as well, like, do you feel any benefit to that? Do you feel that it actually helps to manage and to lead? Yeah, I definitely think it does. Now, now transparency obviously like has its limits. You know, Buffer, for example, posts the salaries of every one of their employees, I, I believe, or at least like the position levels. Maybe they don't put like a name to it, but they put it to the position level. Uh, that's not like a level of transparency that we have adopted at this point. Um, I think that, you know, people's salaries at, at the moment uh, – it should be private. Um, but it, but anyway, I mean, but the but buffer like takes transparency all the way to the extreme. They're probably the most transparent company that I can think of. Um, so anyway, internally for us, um, transparency is a lot about, a lot about, about building trust. Um, because you know, one of the things people are always concerned about is job security, uh, and whether or not they're going to have a job you know, next month. And when you work for a startup, there's probably additional concerns with job security because you're wondering whether or not the company is going to make it. You know, So when we're transparent about the company and how it's doing, uh, we can help basically uh, lessen any fears of maybe sort of the macro external factors of saying, you know, uh, this company is not going to collapse in a month. You guys are fine. And the other thing is also just when we present, when we're transparent about what's going on, people just trust us more in general because people just trust people that are open. Even if even it could be trusting me about something else sort of unrelated to transparency, but you just build up trust in general. And this is really important, especially with our employees, because everyone that's working for us is essentially like a subcontractor. So they're people that uh, maybe were a virtual assistant in a marketplace like Odesk or Upwork. Um, and we hired them and we bring them on essentially full time. Um, but their background and what they're used to is contract jobs where they would work for a week, a, d a day, a week, a month, a couple of months or whatever. And then the job would be over and that would be it. We're hiring them kind of like full time employees, but they're, they're technically contractors. And so why this is important is because a lot of these, a lot of the people that are on our team have a mentality of like, well, this is not going to last, you know, this is, this is short term or something like that. Um, and, or that I could be fired at any minute because I don't have any sort of contract that, that says, uh, you know, these people have agreed to bring me on for one year. And if they let me go, there's going to be some sort of severance package or something like that. So anyways, when we're transparent and when we build up trust, it helps our employees feel more comfortable and secure in their own work and therefore makes them easier to, it makes us it makes it easier for us to lead them. I'd like to talk about now about uh, like digital marketing in, in particular. And, and I'd like to get uh, into the actual you know, actionable insights that listeners could take away literally today and, and, and apply. So what's the number one thing? So you have to choose one. Number one tactic or strategy that marketers should be doing today to be better at their job, to grow in their company without, and that's important, without you know, interrupting, misleading, basically by being ethical to the customers or the, the audience they are trying to reach. 
Sure. I think that I think that copywriting is is definitely one area where marketers can get a lot of of benefit from. It's not it's obviously not interruptive as a as a practice, but you know, if you're able to write good copy and good copy can be anywhere. I mean, it can be, you know, for us it's not just on the website. If people think it's oh, well, well, I'm talking about copyright, I'm just talking about what's on the homepage, but I'm also talking about what's in the application, you know, how we how we guide the user and the user experience through words, you know, what we what we write obviously in our advertisements, in our newsletters, in our emails, how we write our blog posts, all those types of things, copywriting, I think are, are really important as a way to, to find that balance, that, that overlap between sales, because you've got to kind of market and sell yourself, but in a way that doesn't sound spammy or overhyped or is interruptive or things like that. And you know, I've done a lot of writing. I'm not the best copywriter, but I think like I'm I'm decent or what. Uh, and I and nowadays because I've done so much copywriting, I don't think that much of it when I do it myself. But I have seen other people do it, and I think that th- there's a difference. Like uh, people just uh, people just need to learn how to do it a little bit better. So that's that's one one thing. How so? How does one learn about copywriting? I think that, you know, I never formally, I can only say how I learned about copywriting. I never formally took a course or anything like that. You know, part of it is, most of it is just reading, first of all, you know, you're reading blog posts and things like that. You know, I used to read a lot of blog posts about marketing, digital marketing, and that was really where I learned the little little things that once you read them a a few times, they really start to stick, you know, about putting a call to action, you know, in in these types of things. I mean, the first blog post that I wrote you know, with with my personal blog that I had a few years ago was was really terrible and the paragraphs were really long and the sentence was really long. And I had one guy who was a blogger friend who knew a lot more than I did and he said, this is awful and this is why and he kind of helped me out or whatever. Um, but, but basically, you know, reading a lot and reading marketers that you trust you know, uh, guys, for, you know, guys like a Pat Flynn or something like that, that you may feel like these people are trustworthy and I'm going to learn how they do copywriting. And I'm going to, and you can kind of assume by nature that, that they're trustworthy and that they have a, a, a good brand, that the types of copywriting they're going to do is the one you're going to want to emulate. You mentioned blog posts and, and, and articles that you read. Can you remember f- from which sites they were from? The ones that I used to read all the time would be, you know, I used to read Smart Passive Income a bit. I used to read Niche Pursuits. I used to read MatthewWoodward.co.uk. There's another one, uh, Conversion XL, Noah Kagan's OK Dork, um, you know, Brian Dean's uh, website. You know, th- those are the ones, basically the ones that you just feel like are kind of credible are the ones that I, I probably learned the, like, the most from. So did you learn from them talking about copywriting or did you learn from them writing do you know what i'm trying to say yeah it's it's really it's really like looking at their their writing and kind of almost self-analyzing it because these guys don't talk about copywriting that often i mean they you know it probably comes up or whatever but i can't remember you know the ultimate guide to copywriting you know by pat flynn i don't really remember that what i do remember is basically like reading his blog posts or how he promotes or announces a new product and the things that he does. And, you know, I mean, you have to think critically about it. You have to kind of 
you can't just allow yourself to get totally lost in in inside of the promotion or whatever it is, but instead try to kind of look objectively from a bird's eye view and think about why they've structured certain things the way they are. And then, you know, maybe you had, did read an article about 10 copywriting tips and now you're thinking about those 10 tips and how do they apply to this real life thing that I'm looking at right now from Pat. And eventually, you know, it starts to come together. What? What was so terrible about the first blog post you wrote? Well, the first blog post that I, I wrote was, it was just very difficult to read. You know, I hadn't really been thinking about, and I see this all the time, this is a really common mistake or whatever, but there's a difference between um, how you might write an essay in college, you know, and how you would write a blog post. You know, essays in college um, are meant to be uh, read while the teacher is maybe, you know, sitting down in his desk. He's printed out the piece of paper. He's going to go line by line. He's going to make notes and things like that. And he's going to really kind of immerse himself in this. Blog posts are, you know, meant to be read, you know, on the go. Uh, you know, I'm, on the, I'm in the metro or on my phone or, you know, I, I, I've got a bunch of different tabs open and I'm skipping around or maybe I'm trying to do something at work, whatever it is. There's a level of distraction with blog posts. So for that reason, you have to kind of accommodate what the user is looking for, which is something, you know, short, actionable, short sentences, you know, less fluff, obviously like some degree of entertainment and everything in the way you write. But, and that was really the difference. It was really about forgetting about how I thought you were supposed to write and thinking more about how the user wants to receive the information that you're going to be providing. Are you using any tools to write? Well, nowadays, I don't do so much blog writing, but I obviously write, I write outreach templates, I, I edit uh, stuff on the team that, that people do. Uh, the ones that I typically recommend people to use are things like, number one is Grammarly, which I think is good for, especially for non-native English speakers to get some help with, you know, sort of obvious edits. Another one is CoSchedule's Headline Analyzer, which gives you like a rating on how good the headline is in terms of, you know, the keywords and the length and things like that. There's another app I think called Hemingway um, that you can basically po post the text into and it will tell you like um, how readable it is and you know are the sentences too long or, or, or things like that. And then another one is uh, there's several apps out there that you can run your text against to make sure it's not plagiarized. That's going to sound probably like a no-brainer. But sometimes when you're reading other posts for inspiration about something that you're going to write, you want to make sure that uh, you don't accidentally kind of put too much of what you've read in your own writing. So that's just a good one as well. So a couple of those are the ones we'll typically run our own blog posts and things through. That's a really, I really like this advice. And I think, I think sometimes it's forgotten in a day, in today's world where it's all about visual and video. And, you know, like we heard a lot from like Facebook saying that video has the highest engagement, but words still matter. And I think that's, a, yeah, that's a very interesting advice. Uh, I think Basecamp mentioned in their blog post a few times that when they want to hire two people and they don't really know which one to choose from, they always say to choose the best copywriter. Uh, yeah, that's a good, interesting uh, idea. I definitely think it's... Uh It's a it's a hard to find skill. It really is. Uh, I, when I talk about people on the, we have a lot of you know we have 12 guys on the team. They're good at a lot of different things. There aren't that many I would trust with copywriting. You know, it just it just isn't something that you find everywhere. And to your point about you know video and images and things like that, 
Yeah, it, it may be the case that blog posts are not how people are going to digest information, you know, five years from now, maybe it won't be the preferred piece of content. But, you know, we make videos at Ninja Outreach, but we start with a script, you know, it starts with a script, and I edit that script always. And then we make the video because, you, you, you know, we're not mind readers, like you're still using words to communicate with somebody else. It's just in a different format. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. It's all about the structure, right? And it's all about coming up with thinking for your customers, understanding how they're thinking so that we can translate that into a proper outline. Mm -hmm. So going beyond this tip, what are the top three resources for digital marketers out there you think they should use every day or read or? Ah, it's, uh, you know, it's in terms of resources, it is, it is hard to just pick sort of three because for me, it's, it's always about finding the, there's never, there aren't any resources that I feel like kind of answer all my questions. You know, there's, you know, conversion Excel, for example, is, is a blog, uh, that I think is just, you know, they always pump out really good articles that are backed by facts and case studies. And I've learned a lot looking at that blog, but it is primarily about things like conversion rate optimization and sales. And, uh, you know, there's less, that, that might be in there about how to grow your newsletter list, right? If that's what I wanted to learn. So with each thing, I'm always kind of looking at what I need to find as opposed to just following kind of three things and, and kind of expecting that to kind of tell me everything. So like I said, I, I mentioned some of my, my favorite blogs like, you know, Conversion Rate Excel and Backlinko and Smart Passive Income. Outside of blogs, you know, I've I've read the books I, t I tend to read tend to be more about business stories and, and, and things like that, which I don't necessarily think are, are a source of uh, our resource in terms of maybe tactics, but are maybe a more of a source of inspiration. And then there's some communities like Product Hunt or Growth Hacker or Inbound. I think that those are pretty valuable resources. Actually, that's probably what I'll say. Uh, you know, Inbound, Growth Hacker, Product Hunt, because the community aspect of voting on which stuff is the best is serves as an internal filter to kind of weed out anything that isn't really good. And it's kind of like everybody else is doing the grunt work to say, this is good stuff. You should read this. So, you know, I have a newsletter, you know, I subscribe to the newsletter for growth hackers and things like that. And, and they always let me know what the best stuff is. And it's the most valuable resource for any marketer is time uh, because you just don't have time to read all the information that's out there. So, so anything that can kind of curate through a list of hundreds of people that you re that are you know respected probably marketers is a good one. Those are the ones I like. Is there any book that you read that changed your life? You know, the, the four hour work week was a big one, which is an answer that I think a lot of people have said that it sounds kind of cliche or whatever, but the, you know, the thing, the, the thing about that book was it, I'm not in the – some people read that book and said, wow, I'm going to quit my job and go travel the world. And that, and that would be pretty life-changing, I could admit. But we had actually already been traveling by the time I read it, so that doesn't really apply to me. But his section about virtual assistants was – for me, I mean, has, has changed my whole business because – uh, that concept, uh, which for someone who's been marketing for a few years seems totally normal and everybody's got virtual assistants and things like that, for me was totally new at the time. And I don't know how long it would have been until I came across that information again and really kind of pursued it in the way uh, that I did once I read that book. And at, once once you 
are going your own business, you, you see that you just can't do it all yourself. Uh, there's no, there's no greater resource than additional manpower. You know, I mean, I don't care how much you know more efficient I make, you know, my typing and stuff like that. Like I, I'm not going to find another 40 hours a week, you know, at a price that, that you, that you just can't beat. So, so that, that book, aside from just being generally kind of inspiring and entertaining read specifically that part about virtual assistants, we went out and got a virtual assistant like within a week or so. And, you know, she was the first one we ever had and she helped us, you know, booking travel things and doing all these different things. And once, once we kind of got, once we kind of experimented with that concept and, and got trust and confidence in it, we started kind of getting more and more of them to build our business. Any, any sites or resources for that to find virtual assistants for listeners out there? The one I've always used and, and always been really satisfied with is Upwork. And I've looked at, I, I looked recently, I was kind of high, we were in a hiring spree again in Ninja Outreach to bring us some more people. And I wanted, you know, instead of just being like, well, I'm just going to go to Upwork because I always go to Upwork. I wanted, I wanted to say, well, what's out there? And I started Googling around, you know, top 10 freelancer sites and things like that. And I tried a bunch, I posted on a bunch of different ones. But I still came back to Upwork. That was the one where I got the best quality, the best experience. The one other one that I liked was actually Hubstaff's Marketplace. They have a freelancer marketplace as well. It's not really built out. It's it's really it's almost more of like a directory and a search as opposed to like a whole platform like Odesk is. But the types of people that we found there, I, I felt like there was a bit of a selection bias because in order for you to know about Hubstaff's marketplace, you'd have to be a bit savvy because it's not that well known and, and stuff like that. So we found, I found, we hired some people from that that I thought were, were really good. Um, who else do you think I should interview next? My go-to recommendation is always my friend Chris from snapper.io because we're in the same mastermind group and we try to give each other, you know, sort of a heads up about opportunities to promote promote ourselves. You know, I can give you his email address and things like that. Uh, he also runs a startup that's about the same size as Ninja Outreach, and I think he'd have a lot of interesting stuff to say. I, I mean, I, I don't, in terms of transparency, because I know that's part of the angle, I think that, you know, they, no, they don't put their income out there. But, but I think, you know, relatively transparent guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, transparency is one of the things we are interested in, but in, I think in general, it's about no BS marketing and the stuff we talked about. So I'll definitely uh, check him out and we'll have a talk for sure. Mm -hmm. So Dave, where can listeners connect with you, find more about you? Yeah, uh, my email address is dave at ninjaoutreach.com. That's the that's the one I've always got open. Uh, we have a Twitter at Ninja Outreach. I don't man, I don't sort of man it that often though. So it's really email, and of course our website is ninjaoutreach.com. Do you have any special offers at the minute? Anything that people can benefit from? Well. Depends when I guess what well, depends when this podcast is going out <laughs> uh, because we have you know Black Friday coming up and we always do offers you know every year for Black Friday but if you're, we're not launching this until January it'll be difficult for me to to kind of uh, say exactly uh, if what will be going on at the time that makes sense I guess what we'll do is we'll add any promotion that you have when we promote the podcast to the notes making sure that people can benefit from it. Right, Dave, that was really, really interesting. I really like the part about copywriting in particular. So thanks so much for your time today. And if you have anything else to say or anything I forgot, feel free uh, or else we can wrap up. I think we're good. Thanks a lot, Thank you. Take care. Bye. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, 
I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always unsubscribe for sure, if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet. And we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing i like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. That's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.